Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 501 with Dave Desell. Dave is sharing his insider perspectives on how to turn insight into compelling communications. You'll learn one, three foundational principles for capturing your audience's attention, two, the best disposition for presentations, and three, how to create more engaging presentation slides. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F501. Now here's Dave's story. Dave DeSell was a director of consumer insights at Netflix, focused on delivering insights that drive product innovation. Dave has over 17 years of experience in the market, brand, and user experience research and consulting areas. And while he was focused on the technology and media categories at Netflix, his past experience ranges across a variety of industries, including financial, automotive, food and beverage, retail, and general consumer goods and services. Dave is about to share some brilliant insights that capture your mind, heart, and guts, so it seems fitting to introduce you to our new sponsor, Charles and Covard, who will do the same. They created the world's most brilliant gem. It's called Moissanite, and they're the place you could get it. Moissanite has double refractive properties, which give it more fire and brilliance than any other gemstone in the world. When I showed my wife her Charles and Covard earrings, she exclaimed, this is my favorite thing that sponsors have sent you. Moissanite is such a rare mineral that they have to make it in their lab. Moissanite is ethically sound, incredibly priced, and just strikingly gorgeous. Charles and Colvard offer engagement rings, wedding rings, and more in 14 karat white, yellow, and rose gold in a whole variety of shapes from emerald to princess to pear to square to radiant and more. It's 100% made in the USA. You can learn more and get exclusive savings at charlesandcolvard.com slash awesome. That's spelled Charles as in C-H-R-L-E-S-A-N-D c-o-l-v-a-r-d dot com slash awesome charles and colvard dot com slash awesome dave thanks for joining us here on the how to be awesome at your job podcast thank you so much for having me well i've been excited to chat with you for a while and i thought we would talk a lot about some of your adventures now and at netflix but you said your best job was working as a bike messenger in philadelphia what's the story here Yeah. So I worked my way through college, undergraduate college, as a bike messenger in Philadelphia for three years. And I'll tell you, it was the best job I ever had. And if I could make an actual living at it, I would still be doing it. And the reason is, is it was just such a stimulating day every single day. So three big things. I mean, first of all, just being able to eat a mound of spaghetti and drink a six-pack of beer at the end of every day without gaining an ounce was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) But what was really fascinating was just imagine biking through Philadelphia downtown traffic in the ice and snow and rain and just having to constantly be making like instant, always on the edge, life or death decisions about, (laughs) should I go left? Should I go right? Should I go around this guy? Should I pass on the left or not? You know, that sort of thing. And then probably the most fascinating thing too, which sort of projected into my future was this idea of visiting like every level of society throughout my day. I'm street level all day long, so I'm seeing the powerless homeless, I'm seeing your everyday blue-collar worker, but then I'm going up into these 
into the 56th floor of these high rises and delivering packages for high powered lawyers and that sort of thing. So that was pretty fascinating. Oh yeah. Well, so and the fascination continued over the course of your career as the director of consumer insights at Netflix. And I've seen you present consumer insights and it was, it was excellent. So maybe before we get into the particulars of, of, of some of that, I want to hear from an insider. So Netflix has kind of a legendary culture. What was your experience there in terms of what was really cool and noteworthy and you wish all organizations did? And, and what are some of the, the drawbacks to that? Because, you know, every pro, I, I find, often has a, a shadow side in terms of, of cultures. Yeah, I can't say enough about the Netflix culture. Uh, it was something that really fit me extremely well. And when I first read the culture deck and I was first interviewing for the position there, I was really taken with the culture deck. And I was really pleased to hear in my interviews when I asked people, is it true? Everyone said, yeah, we walk the walk here. And what was amazing about it was the core of the culture is freedom and responsibility, of course. So what was amazing about it was the freedom, right? Embracing that freedom and feeling just unleashed. In my first year there, when people asked me, what's it like to work at Netflix? I said, I finally feel like I've been unleashed. People aren't telling me what I should be doing and how I should be doing it, right? I'm relying on my own wits, on my own intelligence to do what I think is best to do. Now, the flip side of that is the responsibility part, right? Because never have I felt so much responsibility, right? I have no one to blame but myself if things go wrong. I can't fall back on the platitude of, well, I was just doing what my manager told me to do because I had the freedom to do my job the best way I saw fit. Now, that takes a lot of risk-taking, right? Mm -hmm. But Netflix balances that really well with a really high tolerance for failure. Being an innovative company, they have very high tolerance for failure. And in fact, one of the favorite things I heard in all my years at Netflix was our VP of innovation, Todd Yellen. He said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, if every A-B test that a PM runs is a success, he's not doing his job yeah. because he should be taking bigger risks and he should be failing because risk-taking involves failure. And of course, you want to learn from your failures and succeed the next time. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, right? So you just feel that each day. Yeah. And the type of people that really thrive there are self-starters, people that really strive for, for hitting a really high bar. And so they end up putting a lot of pressure on themselves. But that's weighed by the incredible amount of freedom that you're given to do your job the best way you see fit. Well, I, I kind of wondered. So I guess there's sort of like a, a not an official vacation policy as well in terms of, hey, you know, take, the, take the days you need. But like, how's that go? You know, that's hit or miss, and that's completely dependent on the individual. I'm sure there's plenty of people for whom that policy meant that they rarely took vacations. For me personally, three years in a row, I took five weeks all at once and went to Costa Rica. The very following winter, I took three and a half weeks and went to Panama. So I took advantage of it. Cool. Well, well, glad to hear that was, was an enjoyable experience. And, and now you're, you're off doing your own thing. What is your expertise and offerings all about? So in my 20 plus years of doing consumer insights work, the two things that I've become really good at, if I can be immodest for a moment, is being able to 
tell stories based on consumer insights and being able to craft consumer insights into frameworks, frameworks that become thinking tools for business stakeholders and that they can apply to any problem space. And they work cross-functionally as well. So you come up with a really, really good framework and marketers can look at that framework and say, now I know how to market our product. Product developers can look at it and say, now I know what kind of features I need to build. Uh, content developers can look at it and say, now I know what kind of shows and movies I need to produce. Well, that's cool. Could you give an example then in terms of, all right, so here's insight we got and then how that turned into a framework and, and how that's useful. Yeah. So one of the big insights we uncovered in our work as the consumer insights team for Netflix was the idea that, you know, it was pretty common knowledge and common sense that consumers really bought into the Netflix brand and what that brand stood for, right? It stood for innovation and consumer control. We also saw once we started creating our own original content that people, of course, got very excited about certain big individual titles like Stranger Things and Orange is New Black. Got big cult followings and people just love those individual shows, right? But reading between the lines of many studies we did and many A-B tests that we did, what wasn't quite so obvious was consumers' appreciation for the diversity of our overall portfolio. Because as we created more and more originals, we expanded them beyond just your typical sort of like bingeable dramas, right? We started doing reality and, and all kinds of things, sitcoms, etc. The game show Awake, I discovered recently. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Always expanding, right? And that started registering for consumers is, hey, they don't just have like great individual shows, but like when I look at the overall portfolio of stuff they're producing... It's really diverse. It's not just diverse for the different types of consumers we have, but it's really diverse for the different moments of truth that people have, right? The different viewing moments that people have. Sometimes I just want to sit down and zone out to a sitcom. Sometimes I want to get really deeply involved in a, in a dramatic series, etc. So that was something that was that I felt was being overlooked by the business. We got the business was paying attention to our brand matters they were paying attention to our individual big titles matter, but they weren't quite catching on to the idea of like the overall portfolio. We can tell stories about the overall portfolio and just how diverse it is and how well it can serve many different types of consumers and many individual consumers, many needs. And so I put together a great story about that and a framework that basically illuminated this notion of what if we could... What if we could sync up all three of those things, our brand equity, the love people have for our individual titles, and the overall feeling people have about our overall portfolio? And what if we could sync those up in both our marketing and our in-app experience? That could be really, really powerful. And, and what happened? Well, I ended up crafting that particular framework as the idea of three turntables spinning in sync which was actually inspired by one of Netflix's own originals, The Get Down, which was a story of the early days of the evolution of hip-hop. And there's this great scene in the show where Grandmaster Flash is teaching one of his students how you spin two turntables in sync to always keep that groove going and keeping the party participants dancing. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what really inspired it. So it became known as the three turntables framework. And so then subsequently, folks were looking at, okay, well, hey, h- how does this perform or, or what does this do for us with regard to our three turntables? That's right. So marketers could look at that and think about, okay, maybe we need to integrate our various campaigns, our brand focused campaigns, our title campaigns, and maybe we need to start generating some campaigns that speak about the overall portfolio. Product people, designers and PMs were able to look at it and say, how do we elevate the brand within the in-app experience? Because right now it's, it's a big list of individual titles, right? How do we elevate the brand within that homepage? How do we maybe recategorize some of our rows to, or even the entire homepage to give people a sense of the overall portfolio and everything we have to offer? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's cool. So, so thank you. I, I kind of understand what, what we're talking about here with regard to these terms and, and how that can be really handy for folks, especially at scale with a lot of cooks in the kitchen working on stuff and, and tweaking and refining and, and having some cohesiveness there. Mm-hmm. I'd also love to know, you really had a, a quite a privileged position in terms of, boy, all that data. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that would just be so fun. Uh, you're, I'm showing my colors here, former strategy consultant. So could you share with me, maybe for fun and for edification in terms of folks who are, are trying to delight consumers, uh, what was maybe a, a counterintuitive insider two or three that can can serve us as, as we're we're thinking about how to create hits for those that we're serving? That's an interesting question. So if I really think about that, I don't think there really are any counterintuitive insights about consumers, but there's plenty of counterlogical insights. So what I've experienced in doing insights work for 20 years with stakeholders is they often approach the assumptions they create about consumer preferences and behavior from a logical mind point of view. And we've known for a long time now that consumers are ruled as much, if not more, by their gut and their heart. So it's the job of a great insight professional to take the mind, the gut, and the heart all into account when analyzing consumer behavior. And can we do maybe a nice contrast distinction? It's like when we say mind, we're talking about these kinds of things. And gut are those sorts of things, and heart are these kinds of things. Sure. Minds are... so. As someone who interviews plenty of consumers about how they feel about things, how they see the world, how they feel about products and services, etc., it's so easy to see when they're in a rational state of mind. They're thinking through the answer to their question. But oftentimes, you also need to read their body language. You need to read their tone of voice, right? You need to see when what they're saying starts to really show up at an emotional level. They start to lean forward, they start to get excited, et cetera. And you also need to look at their behavior. I mean, it's well known for a long time now that you can be in an interview in someone's home and they'll say one thing and two minutes later, you see them do something that's completely counter to what they just said, right? So, and that's kind of their gut, right? They're operating at their gut at that point. So you really need to pick up those cues of not just what's coming out of their mouth, because that's often the most logical thing, but also what they're doing, which is often driven by intuition, or how they're either lighting up or not lighting up when they're talking about something or when they're doing something and engaged in something. And that's the heart part. And so if you take all three of those together to uncover your insight and explain why consumers behave the way they do, it becomes very intuitive 
why they behave that way. It may be very counter logical as to why they mm. would behave that way. But when you take all three into account, you can be like, oh, right, that makes total sense why they behave that way. And could you maybe walk us through perhaps an instance of you did an interview and then you you got some some great perspective on the mind and the gut and the heart to to paint a full picture there. So we were testing out a new concept for a new type of story where the storyline would be randomized from viewing to viewing. And so the way we did it was we had a group of people watch one version of the story in one room. We had a, another group of people watch another version of, of the story in another room. And then we brought those two people together, those two groups of people together. And we, and we asked them to just talk about the show that they watched. Now, they had no idea that they were watching the same show, just different versions of, of the same show or the same episode. So they started talking about it. And as they were talking about it, on the surface, they realized, oh, well, we must have been watching the same thing. But every now and then, one group of people would reveal a certain detail that wasn't in the story of the other one. And the other group would light up around that. They'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that wasn't in my story. What are you talking about? That sounds really interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, then afterwards, when we asked them, when we unveiled the concept of you guys actually did watch the same show, the same episode of the same show, but there were random variations in exactly how the story was told throughout. What do you think of that? And their initial reaction was, oh, I don't like that. We should all be watching the same thing. So when we get together and we talk about it afterwards, we're all talking about the same thing and there's not confusion. And yet 10 minutes earlier, we saw so much excitement and intrigue when they realized, hold on, we saw the same story, but my story didn't have that particular detail in it. Tell me more about that detail. So there's an example where if people thought about it logically, they would automatically say, no, I don't want to watch a story that's a little bit different from the story that my friend is watching because when we get together, we want to know what each other saw. But when we observe the actual behavior of them talking about it and realizing, hold on, your story was a little bit different. There was so much excitement and so much joy in that. Well, yeah, boy, that, that's intriguing, certainly. And I guess a whole new concept there. So, well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I guess I, I'd also like to get your view then in terms of we're talking about story a lot and, and you're looking a lot at sort of what's resonating and what's hooking people and what's not hooking people. Are there some universals or foundational principles in terms of this is what makes for some captivating stuff? So great storytelling, and I'll, I'll keep it to telling great stories based on insights, which is my forte. So it's got three things three things I've already mentioned before, right? It's got the logical appeal. It's got the emotional appeal. It's got the intuitive appeal. So too many times professionals, when they put together presentations to try to persuade an audience or inform an audience, they stick to just the logical stuff. And they completely ignore trying to hit people at a gut level that helps them to intuitively really get something and also make them really feel it. So the way I think about it is whenever I craft a story and I want to appeal to both the logical mind, the intuitive gut, and the emotional heart is they each have their role to play. When you present the logical data or insights about your topic, what that evokes in your audience is the, mm, 
mm-hmm reaction, right? When you give them something like a framework that puts that data or that information or those insights into an intuitive visual model that kind of shows how everything hangs together and the interrelationships among things, that's when the mm-hmm turns into, oh, I get it. And then when you layer on the emotional appeal, which is oftentimes in my world, here's how consumers light up when you get this right. That progresses then from mm, mm-hmm to, oh, I get it, to the emotional, oh my God, now I see what I need to do. So that's the kind of story I try to craft. I try to take people on that journey of mm-hmm to, oh, to, oh my God. All right. Well, well I mean, that, that certainly sounds like a, a smashing performance when you can pull that off. <laughs> could you, could you, I guess in some ways that might be an hour long presentation or, or it might be, you know, much shorter. Could you perhaps walk us through an arc in which we can experience these? Oh boy. Well, I'll tell you one of the most powerful techniques that I learned from my longtime friend and colleague, Ted Frank. Fellow guest. Yeah, pretty much everything <laughs> I've learned about storytelling, I've learned from Ted Frank. The thing that can tie all of that together and that can really progress you from mm-hmm to oh, I get it, to oh my God, is tension. So when you can build tension, and oftentimes, how do you build tension? When you think about Hollywood movies, how do they build tension? They often do it through foreshadowing through suspense, through increasing action and conflict, right? So with the logical stuff, oftentimes with the logical stuff, you're sort of setting the, here's the current state of our hero and their world. Then you start to add more and more insight that sort of ratches it up and starts to unveil the kind of life they could be living, right? And then you ratchet that up even further and you really make them feel, oh, if only they were living that life, this is what the ideal would be like. This is their new bliss. And I'll have to give credit of the new bliss to, uh, to Nancy Duarte right there. So building tension throughout your story is one of the most effective ways to progress people from just logical understanding to intuitive, I get it, to heartfelt, oh my God, I need to do something about this. And, and was there a particular application of that with, with regard to a, a product or service and, and then the going through those three stages with great effect? Yeah. There was a study I did at Netflix looking at many, many years ago when we first started creating our originals. We thought about okay, as we create more and more of these originals and we start to kind of promote them within the app, always at a very personalized way, how do we make sure that that we don't tip over into this perceived like negative advertising, this feeling that we're just pushing stuff on people that we want them to watch as opposed to what they want to watch? And so we did a, a lot of research around that and we ended up coming up with seven factors that play into how you need to conceive of an in-app product promotion. And the story I told laid the groundwork of, here's how people perceive ads today. 
There are good ads. There are negative ads. Here's how people describe good ads. Here's how people describe negative ads. Here are some examples of good ads. Here are some examples of bad ads. And that was all like very logical stuff. And then as I presented that, I surfaced, okay, at a conceptual level then, there are these seven factors that play into whether an ad is perceived as positive or negative. And here's those seven factors. And there's a subset of these that you want to lean into because they tend to have people perceive the ad as being a positive thing for them. And there are these other, this other subset of factors that you want to lean back from because they're the ones that put your ad into negative territory in people's minds. But then the power of the framework became, look, you don't have to always lean back from the bad attributes. If you want to dial up one of those, so for instance, one of those was frequency. You show somebody the same thing too often and it starts to become very tiresome and a negative ad, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to dial up frequency, that's fine, but you also need to dial up one of the positive attributes. So I'll give you an example. One of the positive attributes was relevance, right? Is it relevant to their tastes? So if you're going to go high on frequency, you better make sure it's extremely relevant to them. So the, the framework was, look, you can be setting these dials in combination with each other to create a really powerful promotion that not only helps promote the great original content that we're creating, but also pleases and delights the customer at the same time. So that was the creating that framework was the, oh, I get it. And then the emotional part was then being able to show stories of consumers reacting negatively when Netflix or other services got it wrong and when they really lit up and reacted really positively when either Netflix or a service got it right. Okay, cool. Thank you. And then I guess maybe to, to sort of back up in the chronological sequence of things here, do you have any favorite questions that you're asking consumers in, in surveys or interviews that often seem to, to yield great stuff that's super useful? Yeah, so I'm a qualitative researcher uh, by nature. I know enough about quant to be dangerous, but I've, I've grown up as a qualitative researcher. So that's a lot of face-to-face interviews in people's homes, uh, in facilities, focus groups, that sort of thing. And I'll tell you the most effective question that I ask is actually not a question. It's a statement. It's simply, tell me more about that. And people just, you know, they start to expound on their initial logical answer And you just get them talking about that. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And it starts to unveil so many underlying psychological drivers and motivations and feelings. It's the most powerful statement in consumer insights as far as I'm concerned. Excellent. Certainly as opposed to, all right, and the next thing in my script I will execute. It's like, no, no, you're going to hang there for a while. Well, no, worse is they give you their initial answer and you say, why? Because what are you doing? You're only engaging their logic then, right? Because then they're like, oh, well, why is that? And they go back into their heads and they try to figure out why, as opposed to just simply tell me more. That totally makes sense because why would they go? Because that is what I'm looking to accomplish versus Mm -hmm. tell me more about that. It's like, I get such a rush out of, you know, whatever. Exactly. Totally different pathway. Cool. And then... So I want to talk a little bit about sort of like the the presence part in terms of what you're bringing to your delivery. 
of the story if you're presenting in sort of a, a group or a meeting. Mm-hmm. Any pro tips there? Yeah, definitely. So when I think about presence, the best piece of advice I can give to someone is to be bold yet humble. So when you know what you know, be bold, have conviction, have a strong point of view. When you're not sure or when you don't know what you don't know, be humble enough to admit that. So I'll give you an example. I I was in one of the product strap meetings at Netflix uh, a few months ago while I was still there. And the topic at the time was an extremely technical data science topic. And I was listening to the whole thing. And we were debating whether this was a good direction to go or not in terms of data science analysis and ways of evaluating our A-B tests. And I raised my hand and I was very nervous when I did so, but I started with, look, I am way over my head when it comes to the technical aspects of this. I'm barely keeping up with this conversation. But if I understand the underlying concept of what you're trying to do here, what I like about it is that this is a much more forward-looking analysis as opposed to simply relying on how we may have changed behaviors currently in the short term. And this is much more looking at how do we think we're going to be changing behaviors in the long term. And we've always sort of wished we could do that. And so I'm glad that you guys are taking the step to really like go out on a limb and try to predict the future, so to speak. So, you know, I was humble in saying, look, I barely understand what you guys are saying, but I had this strong conviction that I think the concept of what you're trying to do is a bold concept and I'm 100% behind it. And I think that also will do wonders for your credibility in terms of, you know, when you when you know something, you know it. And when you don't, you don't. So they, they just don't suspect you of, of BSing ever. That's right. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the big ahas for me is that people find you more credible when you do exhibit that humbleness because they see you as more human, right? And when they see you as more human, they see you as more like themselves. There's plenty of times that people are sitting in meetings feeling like I'm in over my head to hear I'm barely understanding what's going on. But if someone else has the courage to admit that, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that guy's like me. And that just makes you that much more credible in their minds just because simply because you're perceived as more human. I dig it. I also want to get your take in terms of just like super tactically, what are your top do's and don'ts when it comes to slides? You you got a lot of rich information, you're presenting it. What should we do and what should we not do? Oh my God. Do not put more than one thought on a slide. Uh, The most powerful thing you can do with slides is build. So oftentimes I'll create a slide that does have a lot of information on it or has a big concept on it with a lot of elements to it and a lot of moving pieces and a lot of inner relationships. And I create that slide, that one single slide, but then I copy it however many times I need to, five times, 10 times, whatever. And I build it up. So I create the ending slide where all the information is on there or the full-blown concept is, is presented. But then I create five or 10 copies of it and I delete what's not needed until I get to that point. And so I introduce the first point and then I show how that point leads to the next point and how that point leads to the next point and how things hang together. So by the time they do see the 
the big slide that has it all, you've taken them on a journey and they understand it all. The worst thing you can do is just put a slide up with a lot of words or one big, like even if you come up with like this amazing visual model, putting that visual model up on the slide all at once. Because as you're talking people through it, it's human nature. They're already trying to decipher the slide on their own. And they're not listening to what you're saying. They're looking at the slide and they're trying to piece together everything that's on the slide and trying to draw their own conclusions or interpret it themselves. But if you can break it down into bite-sized chunks and you introduce one piece at a time and you show how that piece leads to this piece leads to this piece, their understanding and their grasping of it increases tenfold. That's excellent. Well, I had a feeling that you had a lot to say about slides. So anything else leave you to mind in the do's and don'ts? Let's see. Do's. Yeah. Use a lot of white space. And in presenting, so this comes more to the verbal part, in presenting, you need to use body language and you also need to be comfortable with and know how to use silences. Silence can be a very powerful tool, especially a powerful tool for building that tension I was talking about earlier. Absolutely. So for instance, in my presentations, sometimes, oftentimes I use the the tactic of throwing a hypothetical question out to the audience with a nice long pause. And I let them think about in their own heads how they would answer that question. Mm-hmm. And then I show them how the insights we gathered answered that question. And then they get to see in their own heads, whoa, I was way off or you know where they were off or where they were in line with what consumers were thinking, for instance. Certainly. And much more engaging, you know, in, in terms of you're, you're way less passive in terms of your, your, your brain is, is getting the wheels turning there. Yeah. Yeah. And with slides, the other thing you want to do is just keep it moving. And that, that's why a build is so powerful. I presented, I'll give you a, I'll give you a truly counter logical, counterintuitive ratio. The fewer slides you have, the longer your talk is going to be. <laughs> so I presented a 20-minute presentation with 122 slides. When you do the math there, I only spent about 10 seconds on each slide. And so I kept it moving. There was always this feeling of forward progression. And there was always this sense of you can't look down at your phone. You can't look at your, at your laptop because you're going to miss the next thing. And if you miss that thing, you're not going to understand the three things that follow that. And people cannot help but like lean forward, sit on the edge of their seats to see what happens next if the slide is changing like every 10 seconds and you're giving them something new every 10 seconds as opposed to splashing one big busy slide up there and then talking about it for seven minutes straight, right? They're going to zone mm-hmm. out after the first one minute. Well, that's cool. Thank you. Well, Dave, tell me, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we talk about some of your favorite things? No, I think I've covered it. If you ever find your mind, heart, and or guts are unable to appreciate the goods of a wonderful story or insight or piece of communication because you're overwhelmed with stresses and anxieties, BetterHelp can come to the rescue. BetterHelp provides online counseling to help you be happier and more successful. You can conveniently connect with one of over 3,000 licensed professional counselors in a safe and private online environment on your own time, at your own pace, from anywhere in the world, from just about any device. They got secure video, phone, chat, and text options available. You can start in under 24 hours, and BetterHelp is offering How to Be Awesome at Your Job listeners 10% off your first month with a discount code AWESOME. 
That's betterhelp.com slash awesome. From there, you simply fill out a quick questionnaire to get matched with a counselor that you got some good chemistry to understanding with, and away you go. To get that, you go to betterhelp.com slash awesome, and quick note that BetterHelp is not a crisis line. Okay. Well, now could you tell us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah. So my favorite quote is actually the poem, Our Deepest Fear by Marianne Williamson. Thank you. And how about a favorite study? One of the most intriguing ones to me is there's a, a famous study, multiple studies that actually show this, where charity donations are increased if you tell individual stories. So if you present sort of mass statistics about one in four people suffer from such and such, you'll get a certain level of donation out of that. But if you can then tell the story of one or two people who are suffering from that thing, individuals, and you show their photos and you tell their actual life circumstances, donation rates increase. So that's the power of storytelling as opposed to just presenting mass statistics. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Any book by Peter F. Hamilton, my favorite science fiction writer of all time. He's amazing. In each of his books, he takes some kind of central technological breakthrough in the future and illustrates how that technological breakthrough changes so many things about society and culture when people take that breakthrough and they apply it in multiple different ways. So his latest book, for instance, is Salvation. And the underlying technology there is this idea of twinned wormhole portals. And that just changed the world in innumerable ways. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. My favorite tool is other people's perspectives and ways of seeing things. So using other people as sounding boards, especially when you're creating frameworks and stories. Bounce those off as many people as you can and learn from that. What are they not getting? What are they misunderstanding? How are they interpreting it? Are they interpreting it differently than I wanted them to? And a favorite habit? My favorite habit is my daily visits with humility. So what I think anybody can do is on a daily basis, or at the very least a weekly basis, go and visit something that is so vast and so much greater than yourself, or even than humanity, to give you that sense of humble perspective. So for me, that's the ocean. I happen to be lucky enough to live on the coast of the Monterey Bay in California. So just about every morning, I ride my bike down to the ocean, and I walk along the ocean for half an hour to an hour. And I just look at the ocean, and I just ponder how vast the ocean is, how deep it is, how dynamic it is, and how old it is, right? So much more vast and it's, it's a power that's so much greater than myself. You have to be humble in the face of something like that. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they, they quote it back to you often? Well, I haven't had the fortune of people quoting it back to me. <laughs> but I like to think that one of my favorite nuggets that I try to pass on to other people is this notion of celebrate your strengths and let go of your weaknesses. Because too many people try to fix what they perceive to be wrong with themselves at the great expense of not building upon what is right about themselves. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, as pedestrian as it sounds, LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out to me, at least initially. I oh, know. I love LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I would say this is relevant to anybody who's in a role 
that wants to persuade other people or that needs to persuade other people. Make sure that in your message and in your point of view, you target people's heads, guts, and hearts. All three. Perfect. Well, Dave, this has been a treat. Thanks so much for sharing the good word and, and good luck in your adventures. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. I really appreciated Dave's take on tell me more about that. Tell me more about that in terms of finding those consumer insights, which echoes something we heard from Aaron Schmuckler about how that magical phrase can work wonders in all kinds of contexts, from disarming angry people to giving yourself a breath, a moment to think or getting feedback, and now to dig deeper into getting some great insights. So, boy, so versatile. Tuck it in your back pocket and use it again and again. The show notes, the transcript, the links, items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep501. I hope you'll push subscribe. If you haven't already, you'll catch our next guest. It is Oren Claff. He's going to come on Wednesday because Monday's Columbus Day, and we're going to take that off. And Oren is talking about how to flip the script, to pitch anything, and be super persuasive in those times when you need to get people to say yes. Hope to catch you there, and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.